the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall. Before I bring the guest on, John Greenwald, I... uh, Wanted to mention something we talked about last week, and that was uh, people who are doing UFO research and writing books on it and just sort of gathering information from uh, other books and not bothering to vet it. And I had found this one-off magazine on the magazine rack. You know, these magazines, they do one issue of it uh, on a variety of subjects. And I looked at uh, this one. Of course, they had a segment on UFOs. UFOs had a segment on Roswell. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't very good. In the space of two short paragraphs, I found like six errors. Um, I've got a thing up on the blog about it. If you want to read more about this phenomenon, meaning this idea of doing these one-off magazines by people who are not well-versed in the field, uh, you can take a look at that. Uh, As I mentioned, I'll be talking to John Greenwald here. He is the... um, creator of the Black Vault. He's been around the UFO phenomenon for quite a long time now and uh, knows almost as much about it as I do. Maybe more. I don't know. Oh, I wouldn't go that far, Kevin. (laughs) Hey, John, how you doing? I'm good, sir. How are you? I'm great. And welcome to A Different Perspective. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, I understand from an email you sent me earlier today, this morning, that you had been doing a FOIA request or trying to get copies of the UAP report that was given to Congress uh, last year. And I understand you just received some of that information today. Yeah, yeah, it was a a bit unexpected. Uh, Not to be technical, it was a mandatory declassification review, so it differed from uh, FOIA a little bit. I went a different route to kind of lock the agency, specifically the, uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, to review the classified version. Uh, I determined last year it was 17 pages in length. Got a lot of heat for that because a lot of other people who were citing anonymous sources said it was much bigger. Uh, It turned out to be 17 pages exactly. And so it was released today, uh, is redacted, but it gives very much a interesting look at what Congress saw versus what uh, the general public saw. So I consider it a huge win. And it was... uh, uh, again, although heavily redacted, you still get to see that there was quite a bit more data that Congress got to see than us, and it revealed quite a few more leads as well. Well, the one thing that uh, bothered me about the initial report that we all saw was they talked about 144 different reports, and I didn't know how many different incidents that was. Uh, do you have any kind of feel for how many incidents were uh, involved in this? 
Well, that is kind of the same number. So in that regard, what, what it is when you go line by line is essentially the same thing as the public version, but expanded. So there's no more detail on how many incidents per se versus uh, reports. That's going to be the same. What it does do is is give a little bit more detail, again, with some of the uh, statistics and numbers being redacted. Uh, tells you a little bit more about what they were looking at, the speeds, uh, even went into detail on uh, one particular incident where a pilot was keeping um, uh, his was struggling, keeping his aircraft uh, essentially in control with the high winds, yet the UAP seemingly was fine. So you see a little bit of a glimpse into these cases, but the exact number, uh, no, that is still still elusive when it comes to looking at this. Does it suggest anything about like electromagnetic effects or other things that might have been radiating from the craft that would have affected the air, our aircraft, the Navy aircraft? And was it only Navy aircraft or was Air Force uh, Marine Corps aircraft involved as well? So the report says that the data from the Air Force was was minimal. So it seems like it really did favor the Navy versus the the Air Force. So that and again, that was very reflective in the public report as well. So for whatever reason, why is this haunting Navy pilots? Are they more inclined to report them? I'm not sure. Uh, but it definitely seemed by the wording of the report weighted to the Navy versus the Air Force. Looking at this whole thing, I would have thought based on the locations, that the Navy would be more heavily involved simply because it seems to be affecting our task force or our battle groups in various the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and the Air Force wouldn't be involved in that. And maybe there's not that much of overflight of um, the land areas. That's absolutely could be true. I, I, if if they're saying the data from the Air Force is minimal, what I would want to see, and, and it's just speculation at this point, is the data minimal because there is that lack of interaction between whatever UAPs are and the Air Force on land, uh, you know, uh, more within the our borders versus out at sea? Or does the Air Force just not report anything, yet they're having the encounters as well. Or the third one, which is not popular <laughs> in some circles, is the Air Force involved. And I think that we have to take that into consideration. I asked the Pentagon, so I'll preface my um, uh, quick theory here very uh, quickly with the Pentagon's response. They said that they would not test Air Force technology against the United States Navy without their knowledge. So I, I want to say that the government has shot that theory down. But we know that the government's really not truthful about all of this stuff anyway. So why should we start believing them now, uh, even if they shoot down a, a plausible theory here? So it, in my opinion, it is possible that in some instances, not all, but in some instances, the Air Force may actually know what these things are while the Navy is potentially left in the dark. So that way, nobody's lying when they're giving these statements. The Air Force is keeping quiet. The Navy's saying, yeah, we don't know what it is. But behind the scenes in highly classified settings, we know that potentially there are Air Force drones going on, testing, stuff like that. Where I get myself in trouble with posing that is some people think that I feel that that is a uh, overall carte blanche explanation that just takes care of the phenomena. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but as a researcher, you have to take into consideration all possibilities. In my opinion, that's definitely a possibility for some of this. Well, I know when I was taking some intelligence training, one of the things we had to do is uh, uh, 
select an area of the world and come up with a scenario of what was going on. And it had to involve two or three different forces. And I had was looking at East Timor Island that had both American and Australian forces on it and, and action from other other locations. And one of the scenarios that you were required to look at, or one of the scenarios I came up with was the Australians and the Americans got into some kind of a gunfight simply because of the close proximity, which is highly unlikely, but you had to kind of consider that as, as something that may happen in the future. And I'm wondering if, you know, that's kind of where we are on this sort of thing, that uh, there's a, uh, we're just creating scenarios because this is a possibility uh, that needs to be looked at just in case it goes in that direction. So you're talking about that the phenomena itself is a foreign adversary or or I, I want to no, make sure no, I... I'm just I'm just suggesting because you said, you know, it's the, the Air Force testing their technology against the Navy yeah. without the Navy knowing it. And I'm what I'm saying is when you're creating intelligence scenarios, what you do is you look at all the factors and all the players in the game and even come up with the wildest things. Like I said, with East Timor, one of the things I had I postulated was the Australians and the Americans came into uh, conflict over something. And you had to look at it, even though that is highly unlikely. And I think that's when you're when you're suggesting that the Air Force is testing against the Navy or something like that, it may be one of those scenarios is highly unlikely but it is something that is that is possible absolutely yeah absolutely and just to stress again i don't feel that that is uh, an explanation for all of the phenomena but it is something that we have to consider because and i've talked a lot about this in in recent months and even the last year that i believe that there is a percentage of the uap phenomena that is uh, the, the to uaps uh and the phenomena that is unexplainable. I use the plural version because I do believe there are many facets of this. And with that being said, I believe that now UAPs are being used as a counterintelligence tool that I think that in the grander scheme, they can hide that technology, hide the, the classified tech, entangle it with the true smaller portion or percentage of this that remains unidentified and just muddy the waters and just keep it muddy where we're questioning what is going on. You know, one of the more famous incidents that's bantered about right now uh, is the 2004 Nimitz encounter. It's, it's bantered about quite considerably, uh, maybe even to death, because we don't really have any answers other than it was a big event. We have a, a you know, flare camera footage that is uh, leaked out, but then eventually got officially released. So we have some kind of evidence around it. But one of the witnesses said that the Air Force and the witness for, was from the Navy, that the Air Force came in and, cap uh, and took the data from their ship. So why would the Air Force, number one, be there, but number two, be interested in the data? Why wouldn't the Navy just confiscate it if they needed to for whatever reason? So there, there are these hints of Air Force involvement in UAP encounters that is not explained. So a lot of people take that as, aha, aliens showed up on the scope, so they came in and they took the data. Well, why would the Air Force have to do that? And on top of it, Navy personnel, if they capture something strange, can't just go on the Internet and start blasting it out there. I mean, they have security oaths, NDAs, uh, whatever it might be, but that, that pertains to this particular incident. But regardless, they just can't take the data and go post it out there. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of, of present, current uh, military, uh, serving military men and women over the years, not only about UFOs, but uh, producing for, for television. 
And you got to go through a lot of hoops for them to even talk about their experience, let alone taking data from, you know, a ship like that or, or captured by technology or even captured by classified technology uh, and putting it out there into the cosmos. So I, me, I think, John let, me, John, let me interrupt here because we're going sure. to have to take a break. Yeah, uh, no problem. Your uh, your website's uh, what, blackvault.com? Theblackvault.com, correct, yeah. Okay, we'll be back right after this with John Greenwald, and we'll continue our discussion then. So please stick around. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. And we are back. I'm with John Greenwald. We've been talking about uh, the UAP report. And when we went, went away, John was mentioning that Air, Air Force personnel had come into the Navy for the Nimitz incident and confiscated the materials. And I, I had two questions that popped into my mind uh, when you when you said that, because I know one of the problems we had in Iraq was that the various services had a hard time communicating with one another. The Air Force had a hard time communicating with the Navy, who had a hard time com communicating with the uh, with the uh, Army and so on like that. And I wonder if it's a problem of communications, but also um, while they may have said they were in the Air Force, maybe they weren't. Maybe they were Office of Naval Intelligence uh, masquerading as Air Force, trying to divert attention. And I wondered if there was anything that would hint to any, any of that kind of thing going on. Well, uh, I haven't heard that. I mean, of course, that's a possibility. I believe, if memory serves, the testimony came from uh, Patrick Hughes, who was on the... Um, uh, uh, who was part of the, the, the Nimitz fleet. So I, I don't think that there was any masquerading or even hint at that, but, but, but I wasn't there. So definitely a possibility. I just feel that he was fairly confident that it was the air force that came into where he was to take the data bricks away. Would it been a, um, Assumption by him were the guys in uniform, were they in civilian clothing and he just assumed there were Air Force because we all know the Air Force is very interested in UFOs. Yeah, I, I don't want to speak for him, but from what I remember from his testimony, they were in uniform. Well, that really doesn't eliminate the problem. You, yeah, they could they could be masquerading as Air Force anyway. But it was just one of the things I thought of uh, as well. And I know a number of people have said over the years, you know, we don't spend a lot of time looking at the Navy 
and what they may have been investigating about UFOs and that sort of thing. Have you come across much with the Navy prior to 2004 that was involved in investigation of UFOs? Not really. I mean, in my opinion, anyway, it was kind of a surprise when it was pretty much all surrounding the Navy when this conversation started to to ramp up. And it was like, where was the Air Force in this conversation? And it was all about the Navy. Uh, it was the Navy and, and O&I, the Office of Naval Intelligence, that led the task force effort, the UAP task force. Uh, so we know that there's a much more involvement when it comes to the Navy than it does uh, the U.S. Air Force. So was there something in between, you know, the Project Blue Book and kind of this present day effort? I never really saw anything. Um, on the contrary, I saw evidence that the Air Force was investigating UFOs uh, through something called Air Force Instruction 10-206. And that was an Air Force instruction, a current present day at the time, uh, but present day into the 2000s publication, heavily edited, active. So it wasn't like this, this kind of stagnant publication that was forgotten about. Uh, I was able to prove over the years that it was actively updated, but in there was how to report UFOs, and that was instructed to all Air Force pilots. So it, it, with that said, it, it just seemed like in that interim between Blue Book and now, the Air Force had arguably more involvement, and yet uh, they claim they didn't collect anything through that Air Force instruction. And then all of a sudden, the Navy pops out, and they're you know, filming these things with their FLIR cameras and and the videos are leaking out and pilots are starting to talk to the New York Times. Uh, so after 2017, that really that really changed. And it also seemed like the Navy was surprisingly transparent through about 2018 and 2019. And the reason I say that was that I was able to get them to go on the record for the very first time ever uh, in this conversation, this present day conversation, where they acknowledged that those videos that had leaked out were considered unidentified aerial phenomena, that they had no idea what they were. Prior to that, the DOD wouldn't touch them. So it seemed like the Navy wanted to talk. And after that story broke, it was around uh, September 11th, 2019, I believe it was. After that, it, it just went viral. And after that, the DOD kind of swallowed up any and every inquiry from the general public and the mainstream media that uh, if you were to ask, it went to one person. And it didn't matter if you sent a question to the Air Force, the Navy, the Defense Intelligence Agency, or the DOD. They all went to one specific person inside the Pentagon. Her name is Susan Goff. And that was it. Like it was like pulling teeth uh, to get any type of statement whatsoever. So when you look at that, you look at the Navy, they were wanting to talk. I felt that they wanted more information out. The the spokesperson, Joseph Gratisher, who was the one attributed to the statement that I got, he went on and, and, and did some other uh, statements to mainstream outlets who were double checking what I had published. Uh, which I always welcome because in that process, more information comes out. And there was one publication, I don't recall because it was a couple years back, um, but but they had talked to Gratisher and they got statements and it was very personable. And it seemed like Joseph Gratisher really wanted to make sure that if a naval aviator saw something, 
that they were comfortable in coming out, that he really seemed to want to remove the stigma around this topic. And from a, a military spokesperson like that, that was really amazing to see. And and then shortly thereafter, like I said, everything kind of shut down with these agencies and military branches talking. It all funneled to the, the Pentagon. And she's still there, uh, Susan Goff. I still periodically talk to her and and try and extract whatever uh, information I, I can. But it it re- the level of secrecy on this, I believe, has definitely deepened here in the last year or two, um, which kind of contradicts what people want us to believe. Some people want us to believe. I was um, of the opinion after the Air Force shut down Project Blue Book, at least the public investigation for UFOs that they were continuing to investigate UFOs on a more clandestine scale. Um, and of course, I think Robert Todd discovered Project, uh, or I should say Moondust, which seems to be an investigation, at least in collection activity on UFO material that, that was run from a, a number of different uh, governmental agencies, including the Department of State. I noticed in the Project Blue Book files, there were a couple of um, reports labeled as Moondust. Not very good reports, but but were labeled moon dust, which I think is the important point. And this continued on until 1985 or 86, when the name moon dust was inadvertently leaked to the public and uh, with documents relating to UFOs. Uh, Todd then queried the Air Force about that or the government about that, and he was told that the project uh, had a new name which was properly classified, meaning even the code name was classified. And I was wondering, have you run into anything like that as well? It would be suggestive of what this, what uh, followed on Moondust uh, and how that might relate into the activities today. No, uh, when it comes to Moondust, and I know that you literally wrote the book on it, so uh, I, I bet you would have more to add than me. But I, I looked into Moondust and my experience with it was it was very hard to uncover records. I had gotten some stuff extracted from the Department of State through FOIA, the records of which had had never been released. They were um, uh, sent to me quite a few years ago, probably close to 10 years now. And it, it was it was a very elusive project when it came to Moondust, because, again, there, there were these kind of random references to Moondust, like you said, in some of the Blue Book files, uh, but also in the Defense Intelligence Agency files. I found some stuff in there, the Department of State. Uh, and then most recently, a year or two ago, had done a FOIA request to NASA on the Leslie Kane and Sci-Fi Channel lawsuit that happened years ago. I forget what year it was. It was quite a few years ago. And so I went after records that were uh, pertaining to that lawsuit. And surprisingly, within that, there were a lot of moon dust files, too. Uh, that 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 I had never seen before. You had, may have seen them, but they somehow got into the evidence that was submitted during that case, probably through Leslie Kane's connection and research. And then um, uh, it was submitted to NASA, and there they sat. So it was kind of nice to see some of those documents come out as well. Uh, but long-winded way of saying moon dust is just very hard to get records on, and anything post moon dust era when it comes to that type of a project. I've never really seen anything. I mean, the closest was the Air Force instruction. There was no program name attached, uh, but it was the instruction to report, record, and and submit UFO-related information. That was then sent over to NORAD, and then NORAD would take it from there. 
And uh, that was it. That was all I ever found when it came to the Air Force and what their investigation angles were. Well, I have just uh, completed a book. I actually completed last fall a book that updated uh, the Moondust material that I had published before. I wanted to just call it Moondust, but the publisher wanted to keep the name Project Moondust. I had, I think it was Brad Sparks had ignited kind of a firestorm by saying there was never any, there was never a Project Moondust. And by looking at the materials carefully, it turns out that it really is a more of a code word. And if you had a, an incident that fell under the auspices of Moondust, you would appoint a project officer to, um, supervise the investigation, but there was really no Project Moondust per se. It was a code word. And there was some documentation that they were attempting to, uh, around 1960, 61, to consolidate that information into some kind of a project. But I, I, I suspect where we were on that was Moondust was merely the code word for the material. And it would have been a code word applied by all the various branches of government if they had something that related to uh, moon dust activity, but it was clearly UFO related. Yeah, I think that there was a lot clearly UFO related, but I think that there was a lot of other stuff that really was more researching fallen space debris from Soviet launches and stuff like that, that that wound up in it. And and for me, the documentation that came out, I think really supported that's what they were doing, going out and recovering debris of some kind, which when you hear the D word, you know, everybody who's interested in UFOs, they perk up a little bit. Uh, but I think that when you look at the photographs in the files that have survived, it really does look like there are, you know, fuel like the fuel canisters and stuff like that, uh, that just burn up in the atmosphere and, and, and fall back to, to earth in random places. It wasn't just in the United States. They had files that were uh, South America that they would recover these objects. Uh, I recall off the top of my head, there was one where there was a sphere that burned for like three days, according to the report. So very interesting and intriguing, but I think that it was much more angled towards that, that again, Soviet uh, space debris coming back and us going out and capturing that technology and essentially looking at it and saying, hey, what's this? But entwined in that could be something else. The directives that I saw suggested that uh, Moondust's mission was to recover returning space debris of unknown origin or foreign manufacturer. Mm -hmm. So that does cover UFOs, but it also covers the recovery of terrestrially based uh, materials as well, sending yeah. out to people. We're going to have to take another break here, John. I see by the clock on the wall. We will be back right after this, and I'll be talking with John Greenwald more about UFOs and what's going on in the world of the government. So please stick around. And I am back. I'm with John Greenwald. He in his studio, me and mine, such as it is. Uh, we were talking about Project Moondust. And I think the point that comes out of that is that um, the Air Force, of course, claimed they ended their UFO investigations in 1969 with the end of Project Blue Book. But I think that uh, we all understand that an Air Force mission is to guard our skies against foreign intruders, whomever they may be. And so that if there are alien spacecraft flying around, it's the Air Force mission to uh, intercept those uh, 
craft and make sure that they are not up to any nefarious purposes. So when they deny any interest in UFOs, I think that is kind of a, a conundrum because that is part of their mission. But uh, John, you were saying that, uh, and I, th I think we need to expand on a little bit, is that Moondust uh, explored more than just UFO materials. It was looking for foreign, the recovery of foreign materials and, and that sort of thing. And I, 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 there was a number of cases that have been released uh, that suggest that. Did you find anything or have you seen anything that suggested the recovery of materials that would be of uh, UFO origin? Not anything that they released. No, I mean, I, I would say unknown origin is a safe caveat to or a safe label on this. But when you talk about UFO related, I don't think there was any documents that drew that line. But with a scope like this, if there were UFO fragments, debris, something like that, it would have wound up in these files. What was always intriguing to me, and I'm not sure if you'd agree with this or not, was the elusiveness of the Moondust files, whether it was an actual project or code name. To me, it doesn't matter um, in the sense that when looking for those files, they just seem to be really hard to find. Where if you go after Blue Book files, we know exactly where they are, and there's you know tens of thousands of them, and uh, primarily unclassified. There was some classified stuff here and there, but we know where it is. With this kind of stuff, uh, yeah, it was really kind of nowhere to be found. And the other part of it was there were random agencies releasing Moondust files, where generally with a program name uh, or an effort like this, uh, your OCA or Original Classifying Authority would be one agency. And even though documents may be found throughout the U.S. military or government, they all funnel back to be reviewed at that one agency. With Moondust, it also wasn't like that. DIA released some, State Department, like I said. Some were hidden at NASA, and it was like they all just kind of became the, their own release authority. So even though that may sound dry to, to some people listening to that, it's interesting to someone like me because why, why wasn't there one central classifying authority that, that is the, the, uh, essentially the decision maker on whether or not those documents could be released? You don't see that a lot. Again, you have an OCA, it's there for a reason, information gets forwarded to them, and they review it. So what happened there? Not really sure. So there's something definitely weird about it. And then the last thing I'll point out about Moondust, where it was just kind of random files, there were no, that I've seen anyway, real structured reports, quarterly reports, annual reports, what were they doing, statistics, breakdowns, stuff like that. They were just random references on documents. So does that support Brad Sparks theory that it's a code name? Maybe. Or is stuff gone, destroyed, just lost in, in time? We know with UFO related stuff that's happened. Um, GA, GAO reports that a lot of the Roswell stuff was, was, was missing or destroyed uh, in their report. All the way fast forward, we've got a lot of missing records, even with the Air Force saying that they found nothing at NORAD. And yet the Canadian government, I was able to go through them and prove that they were collecting UFO reports through NORAD and citing what are called CIRVIS, C-I-R-V-I-S, uh, reports, which tied into that Air Force instruction. So, you know, where are these missing files? What's going on? It always seems to, to happen when it comes to dealing with UFO-related cases and, and uh, these types of issues. One of the things that I uh, know as a former Air Force intelligence officer is that I often destroyed documents. Uh, properly destroyed documents. There were things that needed to be destroyed. They, they were of no no further use to us, and uh, or they were replaced by newer and better information. So we 
destroyed the oath. So the older, uh, I, I always have said that the estimate of the situation, the famous estimate of the situation, Rupert reported that it had been declassified and destroyed. And I've always said um, the reason for that was if it was classified, there would be documentation proving its existence. You had to, you had for secret and above, you had to create a document that specifically gave the titles and the dates and that kind of information about the document so that uh, we could determine what happened to it. But if we declassify it and then destroy it, well, then you have no requirements or regulations in effect that require you to uh, create the paper trail. So I've always, I've always thought, thought that about that. But the, the thing that you said, I think, does argue for Brad Sparks' theory that it's a code name as opposed to an actual project is the diversity of the organizations involved in the collecting the data and the diversity in the organization reports about what they collected. And that would be suggestive of, of it being something used as uh, we have a, a unknown object here, whatever it may be, uh, it comes under the auspices of moon dust and we forward the report based on how we normally write those reports. So I think it does argue for Brad Sparks' uh, theory that there is no moon dust uh, project but there is a uh, moon dust code word because there was no headquarters that collected the information, which is kind of the same thing that you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we veered away a little bit from the Air Force, but if I can add one thing uh, about them before we veer too far away from it, uh, that not a lot of people realized was when it came to the to the UFO and UAP report, uh, even though it was away from moon dust a little, but the the. U UAP task force, we, we see highly credited as creating the report. But if you read the actual document, it was co-authored by the ODNI National Intelligence Manager for Aviation. And I pulled it up on my screen just to make sure I had that right. But I had written about this in June of last year. He's a major general within the United States Air Force. So as a lot of people were chastising the Air Force for not being involved in this, where are their programs? Why aren't they involved in the conversation? This major general from the U.S. Air Force was involved in the co-authorship of the actual UAP report. Uh, in the classified version as well, uh, his contribution and co-authorship was not removed at all. So we can safely say that the U.S. Air Force did have some kind of hand in this report, which to me indicates there's more to the story in what they're doing when it comes to UAPs. Because in my opinion, even though he was within ODNI and it was an ODNI report, so that part at least makes sense, uh, he is a major general within the U.S. Air Force. So for me, I think that there is much more involvement by the Air Force nowadays uh, than we're led to believe. So whether or not that goes into the continuation of some kind of moon dust uh, uh, pro, you know, project or, or code name or whatever it was, and it continued at a classified level up until today's conversation, I'm not sure. But regardless, his, his contribution, I think, is definitely of note. Well, I would know one other thing about the way the government works at those levels. Uh, who is the director of the uh, Central Intelligence? Who is the uh, DNR? You know, we have all these intelligence agencies. DIA was the one I was trying to think of. And there's office uh, um, often a an officer of high rank, but is not necessarily uh, branch specific. Meaning, it doesn't have to be an Air Force officer, or a naval officer, or an Army officer. It can be any one of the three. Or, or even a Marine officer, I probably shouldn't say it quite that way, but a, a Marine officer as well, which is suggestive of the allegiance of 
the major general involved in this document may not be to the Air Force, but to this specific office that he's working sure. in. Yeah, with an ODNI, and I, and I would not argue that at all. But I think, though, with his contribution and his credit as a co-author of this report and preparing it, uh, it does beg the question, you know, what type of, of connections is he pulling in from the Air Force side into this report? Or if he's got none and nothing to add, why be the co-author of it? Why prepare it with the UAP task force? Why not just have it as the task force, um, as a product of the task force solely? So in my opinion, he was brought in for a reason. Um, I, don't, I don't read this that he was a reviewer because um, I can kind of channel my inner Kevin Randall that you might you might come in and say that maybe he was just the the reviewing side of it. Um, I don't see that 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 was part of it. Um, I think Odie and I pulled him in for a reason, and I'm curious what that contribution from the Air Force side was. Again, it's all speculation, but it's uh, I, I think an interesting connection from a military branch that's been very mum on the topic. What do you expect to happen in the future with all of this going on? I mean, they talk about transparency, but we don't seem to have a lot of that transparency. Do you see where the thing is going? Yeah, I'm, I, I see. Uh, I'm not sure who you mean by they talk about transparency. Uh, are you talking about the government and politicians? I'm thinking some of the people involved in the research are saying it's going to be a complete, open, transparent investigation into UFOs and that sort of thing. I thought a lot of it came out of Congress, but I don't really see that when we look into the bureaucracy of the whole thing. It seems that there's more uh, uh, attempts to keep it classified and keep it out of the hands of the public. But there was a talk by the Congress that they wanted more transparency in the uh, uh, investigation of the UFOs or the UAPs. Sure. Yeah, no, that, that conversation from Congress has definitely taken place. But what con what Congress says and what they actually get and or really want are two wildly different things usually. So what is the definition of transparency? A public report like the June one from last year, is that transparency? In my opinion, not really, but it's still good. It's still beneficial. We still are getting information. So, so that's something. But what I was able to prove today is that Congress is getting a lot more. They're getting more details. One of the interesting revelations from the, the classified report, albeit it's redacted, uh, is a table of the shapes of UAPs that are being seen. So, so Congress is being briefed about what these shapes are. Are they saucer? Are they tic-tac? Do they have quadcopter-like appearances and they're just drones? We don't really know. But for whatever reason, they redacted each and every shape. So we don't really know what they're uh, what they're actually encountering. But when you when you do kind of digest what those redactions indicate, there's a lot more data here. The well, John, let, me, let me let me interrupt here because we're going to have sure. to break away once again. I'm mm -hmm. keep having to interrupt you. That's I okay. will point out that uh, one of the earliest reports done by the by the military was of shapes, and that goes back to 1947-1948. As I say, I'll, I'm talking here with John Greenwald. We're trying to figure out what's going on in the world of UFOs or UAPs in today's environment. We will be back right after this. So please stick around. And we're back once again. John, before we slipped into the uh, commercial zone, uh, you were talking about the report having a chart of shapes, but they were all redacted, so we don't know what they were. Correct. And I had mentioned that there was a report, I think it was part of one of the um, 
uh, earlier reports in, in 1948 about shape, had shapes of UFOs in it that, and that sort of thing. I've also noticed recently the trend for the shapes to be more um, triangular, a lot of triangles being reported, very few saucers uh, being reported. Circular, I guess, comes up and blobs of light. Uh, you have any observations or anything that uh, can give us a clue as to what really is going on in that kind of a, a arena? No, what I was what I was interested in, though, by this redaction again, even though it is redacted or redacted, uh, I pulled it up here uh, on my screen so I can kind of explain it verbally to you. But uh, it, it, it is about a full page uh, for the common shapes and what they call less common shapes. And there's enough redaction, in my opinion, to show a wide range of shapes. Uh, it doesn't indicate that it's just one shape, but rather quite a few. That to me is intriguing. I mean, I know it's a black box and it's redacted, uh, but they have nearly, again, a full page of shapes. Uh, and how many would that be? Uh, I will be appealing this. I, I have not filed yet because this is literally hot off the press here on uh, obtaining it about an hour or two hours after uh, before we recorded. But uh, that said, I'm going to appeal because I think there's a case to be made that you can't classify or exempt a shape if it's non-identifying. So, again, I don't want to get too boring here with legal jargon, uh, but but in essence, if if they truly don't know what these things are and they are literally just putting shapes or diagrams on a on a report, I, I don't I don't see a strong case to classify that. Uh, if there was Russian writing on the side, if there was a clear shape that indicated a certain model drone or something from either an adversary or our own tech, okay, uh, they can put up a case for that. Um, but the way that this is written, it just seems very generic, and I don't see that they can get away with it. So I am going after it, but I think, uh, again, it's very interesting to see that there is a parallel of those Project Blue Book era reports and 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 breakdowns of shapes then it it is indicative here uh, in pretty much the same fashion in the classified version this was not part of the public report so there was no indicator that there was even a table of shapes uh in the public report so this is all new so not to beat the dead horse again heavily redacted so if anybody pulls this up they they're going to see a big black box with the header common shapes and then underneath that less common slash irregular shapes. But that's intriguing because if you're talking about adversarial drones or that type of technology, in my opinion, you wouldn't have a full table breakdown of those shapes. You would have maybe a description of a, either a quadcopter or you know that type of a, of a drone, maybe a, a, a small handful. Uh, but not referred to as shapes like this. I just don't don't see it. So pretty intriguing. You know, I think that sometimes you have to read between the lines a little bit uh, with these redactions. But I think this is indicative that uh, we may not be dealing with such an explainable technology that we, that some skeptics might want us to believe we are. Well, I would uh, point out, and I hate to invoke the name of Philip Class, but uh -oh. he told me an intriguing story, uh, obviously a number of years ago, that... Um, uh, Aviation Week and Space Technology Photographer was at the Paris Air Show, which is a big deal for those of you who don't know. Uh, all the nations of the world get together and show off their latest uh, their aircraft and whatnot. And the photographer took a bunch of pictures of what would have been Soviet aircraft at the time. 
and they uh, thought that the Air Force would be interested in these photographs. So they gave them the original, uh, once they developed the film, they gave them the original negatives, but they made uh, copies of all the photographs. Somehow they missed one. And that class said, so they went to the Air Force and asked for a copy of the specific picture. And the Air Force said, well, you can't have it, it's classified. And so I, I'm just wondering if we're not kind of caught in that kind of a nonsensical scenario when they're I, classified it, shapes. I mean, it's possible, but to be honest with you, I I don't think that they would have this whole facade of unidentified aerial phenomena. I mean, I believe that that would just be lost in the normal intelligence collection of foreign aircraft, foreign drones and technology and stuff like that. Is it possible? Look, absolutely. I have to consider that. We all have to until we see under the redactions. But I think that there's enough here to show that there is a clueless nature about at least a portion of this and when i say clueless that it may be not as easy to just say drones or balloons or whatever and i and i say balloon because that was the one case out of the 144 that they were able to solve as a deflating balloon the rest they said that uh they remained unidentified so if you know 143 cases allowed them to create diagrams and and table breakdowns of the different shapes. I think that this is an an easy explanation. And that's pure speculation on my part, because I'm looking at a black box. But regardless, I just don't see this really going down that route as being uh, easily explainable. And, and, and uh, again, as as easy as as just a a drone or something like that from Russia or China. So I I, I would be the first to say if if it looked like that, but with this extra information, albeit blacked out, but you see the information that's being displayed here uh, in the classified report and you can see, uh, even though some of the numbers and stats are blacked out, you see what's being broken down for, for Congress. Um, I think there's a lot more to the story. And, and going back to your question about transparency, this isn't it. In my opinion, it 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 took me a long time. I, I can tell you my follow ups were in the well into the dub, double digits with ODNI. And I spoke to him on the phone today and, and apologized. And I said, look, I really appreciate your, your patience with me because I have been eager. Um, I was led to believe the process would be about six weeks. Uh, that was in June of 2021. So here we are in March of 2022. I finally got the, the redacted report. But it was like pulling teeth. Uh, a lot of those follow-ups were ignored. Um, I don't want to say anything bad about the agency because they were very, very, very helpful today in orchestrating getting me these documents. They snail mailed them uh, within the, the post office system. And I was so eager. I just called them on the phone and practically begged. And I said, can I please talk you into scanning these things and, and emailing them? Because, you know, we're not talking about a thousand pages here. Uh, and she was very gracious and, and said, yes, she would. And, and she did follow through. So I don't want to say anything bad, but the secrecy level here is palpable. You look at the classified information that, albeit I was able to extract some, uh, it's definitely not all. The secrecy is there. And, well, let, and, me, let me interrupt because I'm running mm-hmm. out of time here and I do have mm-hmm. a question. Are we moving closer to disclosure? That's the, no. that's the big thing that people are talking about. Disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. I don't think we are. Apparently no. you don't either. No, and I was never hopeful of that. We have to deal in reality. The one last thing that I'll, I'll point out to you that ties into your question 
is late last year, I was able to get what's called the Security Classification Guide, or SCG, on UAPs. And although this was created during the era of the task force, so it's about two years old, uh, regardless, the secrecy is the same. And it showed irrefutably that all UFO and UAP information that comes in is going to be automatically classified at secret or top secret levels, uh, 100% of it. And the majority of the guide itself remained classified and redacted. The secrecy, in my opinion, is deeper now than it was 10 years ago on UFOs. And I think that the information that comes in uh, when it's automatically classified and they don't want to talk about it, that's not a road to disclosure. That is a one-way ticket to secrecy. And even though I will continue to do what I do and I'll try and extract the information that I do and fight, uh, it's going to be a fight. And that is not in a definition of any, any transparency in my book. Well, I know Christopher Mellon came out just... Uh a week ago and said that all the information is going to be born classified. Yeah. So that, that, that to me didn't suggest disclosure was on the horizon. Although a lot of people in the UFO community seem to believe that it is. I don't know where that comes from there. And, and, and it may root to Mr. Luis Elizondo, who has talked a lot about how we're in this new transparent world. But again, it, it really kind of comes down to the definition of transparency. If you're talking about that, the government is acknowledging looking into UFOs and UAPs. Well, OK, I can agree with that. Public reports. Great. But did the June of 2021 report tell us anything other than reports are being collected? We don't know what they are. Hey, we solved this one, uh, but we, we can now clearly see it's Congress that's getting the information, not the general public. Is that transparency? So to some, it might be definitely not disclosure, but is it transparency? I would argue no, but to others, maybe that that extra information is 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 transparency to them. I just would respectfully say, no, that's not it. Transparency is seeing the shapes of UAPs. That's transparency. Seeing the altitudes, which is redacted. Uh, but why I bring that up, that's transparency. But we don't have that. So even though we can see some, we can't see all. And in my book, again, that's just not what some people think is transparency leading to disclosure. Well, John, need to thank you for your time. Anytime. We've, run, we've run out of it. I think we've had a good discussion here, uh, understanding what's going on and getting us a little bit closer to where we are. But thank you for uh, sharing the information with us today. Uh, the It's blackvault.com. Yep. Yeah, and your book is called? Both will work, yeah. Okay. And your book is called? Inside the Black Vault. Okay. Thank you, John. Thank you. We'll have you back soon. Uh, before we go away, I also wanted to point out uh, my latest book is called Op uh, Understanding Roswell. Uh, it just came out. I think it's available. Uh, there's the Leveland book, which looks at the, the Leveland UFO sightings. And a book still called Project Moondust, although it was heavily updated, is... Uh, I just saw the cover today, as a matter of fact, that'll be coming out. It's got a lot of new information in it. When the publisher contacted me, he just wanted to publish the Project Moondust book. And I said, no, it needs to be updated. So I, I, I spent a great deal of time updating it. So it's really not the, the same book. And I wanted to call it something different. But he liked the name Project Moondust, so we were stuck with that. The uh, blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. I have an article about Christopher Mellon and what he had to say about that. Uh, coming up in the future. So I will uh, let you all go. I'd like to thank you for listening to the program and I will be back in 167 hours.